to a doc where we sit down with physicians, get to know their specialties, their hobbies, and get an inside look on the life of a physician. I'm Kaylee, and I'm joined today by Sam. Hey. And Dr. Russell Horton. Hey, Russell. Hey, how's it going? Today, we met with Dr. Ara Feinstein, who is a trauma surgeon and physician executive with Banner Medical Group. He is a boxing commissioner, a dad. He was a cruise line physician, and he has a very interesting LinkedIn, which we talked about today on the episode. I don't know about you guys, but I was just blown away by our conversation. And he's just so funny. And it was such a fun conversation the whole time. What I loved was a lot of the conversation we had was talking about humor and medicine, which is something that a lot of us don't get to see every day. And I think he did a really nice job highlighting uh, what that looks like. Yeah, we don't get to see the funny in medicine enough, I think. And it's, yeah. it's possible. It does exist. So that was great. Yeah, exactly. Overall, really interesting guy. Great conversation and can't wait for you guys to hear it. Enjoy. How, How are, are you? you? I'm good. When I scheduled this, I didn't realize I was on call last night. And uh, so I like took a nap just now. So I'm like, I feel way better. I'm just like waking up and, and, and having my coffee. <laughs> oh my God. We had to wake you up to do a podcast. No, no, I, I was up, but I was like, I didn't want to be like dragging. So I'm like, I'm going to just take a nap. Um, and then that way I, I'm a good napper. Like if I, if I need, uh, to rest, I can nap for like 15 minutes and wake up and feel really good. That's a really necessary skill. I feel like in your field, it totally <laughs> to <is>. have mastered that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I can give me like 10, 15 minutes to nap and I wake up and I'm good. Good to go. I don't know if you found this, but in residency, like residency ruins sleeping for me. Like I felt like I was a nice deep sleeper and then I became this super light anxiety ridded, riddled sleeper that was always waiting for the little stupid phone to go off or your pager to go off or just, it just that, ruined it. It's stupid residency. Yeah, that that's exactly, it even changed my sleeping position. So before I was a resident, I was always like a kind of side sleeper, fetal position. But then when you're a resident, you have the pagers clipped to your, um, to mm -hmm. your waistband. So you sleep on your back. And so I still, to this day, sleep on my back with my hands folded <laughs> like this. Um, and that's because of residency. Um, just because I'm always in that, like about to be paged position, I guess is how I yeah. like permanently sleep now. Well, it takes like five minutes to take all those pagers off and then, <laughs> and then put them, it's just not worth it. You just sleep standing up. It's probably easier. Yeah, exactly. Like I knew people, like I was always a joke, like some residents would like completely like strip down to try to sleep on call, <laughs> which, which was just hilarious because, you know, first of all, you'd like barge into the call room and they'd be in their boxer shorts or something but also i'm like every time you get paid you like have to put everything like you have to reassemble yourself i'm like what a total waste of time so yeah i, I just like like even now if i'm on trauma call i usually like just lay down flat on my back and i've got all my pens and everything in my pockets and you know just just sleep like that so glamorous <laughs> <laughs> There's all the sleeping positions, fetal position, side sleepers, and then on-call position. <laughs> on-call position, which is funny because when I was a resident, my girlfriend 
um, she, her family was in the funeral business. And so it used to freak her out because she said she, you know, like she'd wake up and I'd look like I was a dead body because I would sleep like, like this, no. <laughs> you know, because she grew up in funeral homes and she was like, Oh my God, you sleep like a dead person. It's so scary. <laughs> Oh no, that's funny. Not the same, but uh, I, you guys are making me laugh because right now we're doing night checks all the time with the cows. It's the same thing. Like it's so cold here. Like this weekend uh, is a high of negative five. So we oh, have yeah. our snowboarding pants and our boots and our big jacket, our hat. And between the two hours that you get to sleep going out, it's like, no, just don't even take anything off. So you can just like sleep as the abominable snowman and then pop up and go outside. <laughs> Yeah. way easier just put the cows in your house that would be easier mm. yeah totally might save better. you some time <laughs> we do we not yet this year knock on wood but you, yeah we have had to bring calves into the bathtub before to warm them up because they get too cold so <laughs> not uncommon uh, who wow. hasn't experienced that uh, yeah whatever. cow in the bathtub at your house <laughs> not yeah. here in downtown phoenix i've never seen that <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it happens somewhere in downtown Phoenix. You just don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, thanks for joining us, Dr. Feinstein. Um, we just want to kick it off, get to know you a little bit. Um, tell us where you grew up and what uh, your life was like before medicine. So I'm uh, one of the few people you'll meet that's a Phoenix native. So I, I grew up in Tempe, actually. Um, my dad... Um, was a general surgeon in the East Valley in Mesa and actually worked at one of the Banner hospitals. He worked at, um, back then it was called Mesa Lutheran, which is now Banner Corporate Mesa. Um, he was a general surgeon there um, amongst um, several other hospitals. And so I had, you know, a very uh, normal suburban upbringing in Tempe, Arizona. And, um, and then I, um, went to U of A down in Tucson for college. And then I went uh, back East, did all medical school, all my training, all those years on the East coast. And then the minute I finished my training, I came back here um, to get a job. I'm curious, did you, did you find the difference in like East coast, West coast medicine? Did, was that noticeable to you? Cause I always felt like there's different cultures kind of a, to generalize it, maybe it's a little more relaxed out here than it is in the Northeast and Boston, New York, that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. And that was my reason to come back. I mean, I was, um, I was offered uh, a job to stay at Mass General when I, when I finished and uh, I really loved the people there. Um, but it's exactly that intensity um, that you're talking about um, that it always just, it, it always felt like um, you were sprinting at all times and that if you, if you slowed down to a jog, everyone would be sort of looking at you like, you know, you weren't, you weren't pulling your weight. And, um, and it just, it was, it was great to learn in that environment because I feel like it made me a good doctor, but I didn't want that for my whole life. And so it was a pretty easy decision to come back here. I want to back up a little. So when, how, did you always know that you wanted to be a doctor? Like what, like from high school or where, where, why did you even go down that road or when did that happen? Yeah, I was like that kid that just kind of would tell people in high school, I'm going to be a surgeon. Like I didn't even know, I didn't just know that I wanted to be a doctor. 
I knew I wanted to be a trauma surgeon when I was in high school. Wow. It's kind of crazy because a kid in high school, um, just in terms of the number of years, a kid in high school telling you that he wants to be a trauma surgeon is like a preschooler telling you they want to go to Stanford. That's how many years are between high school and being a trauma surgeon. But I was um, one, you know, strangely certain of it um, way back then. Huh. So your dad was a general surgeon. Was it was it because of that, or had you gone and worked with him a little bit, or what inspired the trauma part of it? So my dad and I were um, super close. Um, he passed away last year, um, but but I grew up rounding with him. So I mean, from the youngest age, uh, I can remember like four or five years old. He would take me to round with him on the weekends when the rules That's were so cool. a bit more lax, and you know, in the hospital. And so <laughs> you put um, those kind of shadowing hours on your med school app. Four four years old, round. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that was the thing. Like with my dad, is that uh, every weekend we would do rounds, and then we would go to Waffle House, and that was just like the thing that he and I did together. Um, and so I grew up around medicine, but I also but I grew up kind of seeing the parts about it that I really uh, liked and then the parts about it that I really didn't like. And one of the things I didn't like um, watching my dad growing up was that he was always worried about referring doctors. Um, He was always worried about, you know, making sure that, um, you know, this referring doctor was still sending him cases and sort of entertaining people and the politics and um, that, whole process I I realized was was not the enjoyable part of it for him and then um, we had a family friend um, when I was in high school that had a terrible uh, car crash Um, she was actually a Miss Arizona it was in the news and um, the trauma surgeon um, that saved her life was also a family friend of ours a guy named Denny Weiland and so through that experience and understanding what a trauma surgeon did and what he was able to do for her and um, just because he was a family friend. And then I realized that if you're a trauma surgeon, you don't have to ask anybody to let you operate. Um, you don't have to like hold a clinic and beg people to let you do their operation. When you're a trauma surgeon, you just show up to work and um, your patients just like come to the door and you get to help them. So that's kind of how I arrived at trauma surgery as sort of an offshoot from, from general surgery. Wow. So what do you, what do you think the perception is of trauma surgery then? Like, because we were talking about this a little bit before is if you look at medical TV shows, everyone's a trauma surgeon, basically everyone's always like running and doing chest compressions on top of a gurney and like, I don't know, rappelling down the side of the hospital to save somebody. But I imagine that's not entirely what your life is like, maybe 90% what your life is like. So, I mean, do you find that people know what you do or do they just assume you're always kind of sprinting through the hospital yelling stat? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was joking. It's like, it's, it's like, it's, it's exactly like that, except not quite that exciting. And we're not quite that good looking that, but otherwise it's exactly, <laughs> it's exactly like that. But um, no, I think, um, well, first of all, whenever I tell people I'm a trauma surgeon, the first thing they say is, oh, so you're an ER doctor. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's, it's different than that. Um, but that's usually people's first response, but you know, it's really, I think like lots of, um, jobs where it's, um, 
you know, relative monotony, uh, routine stuff, uh, punctuated by, you know, moments of, you know, real adrenaline and, um, but it's nice. It's always, it's, it's never the same day. You know, I have friends that are surgeons that love the fact that they're thyroid surgeons and they, they, you know, know that on Monday is clinic and Tuesday is four thyroids and Wednesday is three parathyroids and Thursday is clinic and Friday is four thyroids, right? So it's the opposite of that. It, I never know what I'm going to see when I come into work. And, um, and, and that's the way I like it. But I, but I always tell the residents, um, you know, the advice I give residents is when you look at a career, don't base your choice on the most exciting thing that happens in, in that specialty. Um, so, you know, my advice is if you want to be a trauma surgeon, then you really should like taking out gallbladders and appendixes because that's really the bread and butter of a trauma surgeon, believe it or not, right? We take call, we do the emergency general surgery and routine, you know, routine emergency general surgery is taking out gallbladders and appendixes. And yes, every once in a while, someone gets shot in the chest and you do this really exciting case, but um, you got to love the bread and butter and the bread and butter of a trauma surgeon, believe it or not, is just emergency general surgery routine stuff, which I happen to love. That's awesome. I will say though, I've seen on your LinkedIn that you uh, occasionally take breaks on the helipad. And when I first saw that, I was like, dang, that is some Grey's Anatomy stuff right there. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, I posted that and then I, and then I had this like instant, like pang of worry. Like, is that, are my breaking a rule? I'm probably breaking a rule. Maybe I shouldn't have done that, but they haven't, um, they haven't fired me yet, but I, I don't go out onto the part where the helicopter lands just for, <laughs> just so everybody <laughs> so knows. Everyone knows. I, yeah. I just go out to the outside part where they wheel the gurney in, but yeah, they haven't, uh, they haven't said anything yet, but that is a good spot. Um, you know, if you're having a rough night, it's, uh, it's beautiful up there. Yeah, yeah, I think the TV show version of that is you have to like go up there and like look ponderously out into the distance and then monologue about what the meaning of medicine is and <laughs> what is this crazy world we're living in or something. It just, you know, try to Hollywood it up a little bit. Yeah. There's a Shania well, Twain song on in the back. <laughs> yeah, like, that's a good point. I need to like, when I walk out there, I need to like cue thoughtful music or something to make <laughs> more tv show like <laughs> that's awesome do you watch those shows because med be, going to med school ruined every medical show for me like house i used to love house and now i look at it i'm like what are they doing this isn't what 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 and it, it just I'm, it's a me problem but it ruined it for me no i'm with you i don't i don't watch any of it i i i, I can't uh i i can't deal with it and and my wife hates it if we're watching a show that's not medical but there's like a medical scene and i immediately start <laughs> Let, rolling my eyes and shaking my head and saying that's ridiculous and she's just like it's a tv show so anyway <laughs> yes i'm with you i don't watch any of that stuff okay you don't watch medicine shows but you do get on linkedin and i'm a huge fan of your linkedin i think we're gonna have to like link your linkedin in the show notes since we're an official podcast now but it is so great what is some of the inspiration behind your post you know that's it's, it's it's funny. I didn't really start um, LinkedIn with any intention. I've always 
you know, like most people had Facebook and Instagram. And I always thought there's no need for me to ever be on LinkedIn because, you know, a trauma surgeon doesn't need to attract business, right? It's not like I can, uh, you know, get my name out there as a trauma surgeon on LinkedIn so that people will show up, you know, shot and stabbed when I'm on call. Um, but as I got a little bit more into the corporate side, um, I have a good friend um, that is sort of a LinkedIn celebrity and he's a, he's an Amazon executive. His name's John Marty and he's big on building a personal brand on LinkedIn. And so I've had multiple conversations with him over the years and just watched him sort of take off on LinkedIn. And I just thought, well, I'll just take his advice and I'll start this, um, I'll start this LinkedIn profile. And, you know, it started out by me posting a lot of things about healthcare and health policy, which is a real interest of mine. I have a master's in public health and um, I really am interested in the way that we shape healthcare in this country. And so I, I did a lot of posting about that and absolutely nobody cared. And so, um, so I started to just post a little bit about things that happen, mostly the things that I find funny about work, you know, things that, that make me laugh or make me smile or make, remind me why I enjoy my job. And that seemed to resonate with people. And so that's a lot of what I post and, you know, people, people seem to like it. So I'm, I've kind of, I've kind of veered in that direction, I guess. I don't really know what that does from a career standpoint or anything. There's no goal behind it. It just, uh, it just is what it is, I guess. Wait, you're really good at it. We were talking before the show about uh, there's no gift baskets in trauma surgery. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I forgot about that post. So, um, you know, one of the things the residents, um, you know, they can get down on rounds sometimes in trauma. You know, we serve in trauma um, a population that I think a lot of people don't necessarily see. You know, they're um, the people that end up in the trauma bay. I think we sort of think of them, oh, it's people like you or me that are walking down the street, minding their own business and a car hits them or something. And that's almost never the case. I mean, I think the people that end up in the trauma bay uh, overwhelmingly um, statistically have um, issues with drugs and alcohol. Um, they have psychiatric problems. They're from marginalized parts of our society. And so... Um, you know, I feel like the trauma bay is sort of one of the only places where those people get a fair shake in life, where they get treated like everybody else. But the flip side of that is because of their situation, they're not, they're not often the most um, grateful patients. Um, they're not, um, they tend to sometimes because of their um, substance abuse problems or psychiatric problems, they can be a little bit rough on the team, on the nurses, on the residents. And so um, sometimes the residents will get down about that, right? That they're, you know, spending all this time and energy taking care of these people. And, you know, the, the um, patient might swear at them or insult them or just be generally difficult. And um, so what I always tell the residents when they are upset about that is that there's no gift baskets in trauma surgery, right? It's not, um, that's not what it's about. Um, but the idea that you um, get to serve these people um, 
not only uh, people that never get a fair shake, but also probably on the worst day in their life. I mean, if you're in the trauma bay, um, it's probably one of your lowest moments. So um, I think, you know, and, and we joke and I say, look, you're going to go on the breast surgery rotation and you're going to get gift baskets all day long. So don't, don't worry about it. You'll, you'll, you'll make your, your gift basket quota on all the other rotations. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. One of the breast surgeons has his clinic right next to our, our trauma clinic and he will routinely bring in like cookies and gift baskets and stuff that his patients bring him when they come for their follow-ups. He leaves them in the, in the, in the trauma clinic um, resident room because he can't even eat them all. Surplus gift baskets. That's nice. (laughs) So you get those at least. Yeah. At least he shares. (laughs) I think what I loved about that post though, was that you had something that a patient had written. It was like a little scrap piece of paper and it just said, thanks doc on it. Like that's kind of your, your trauma gift basket. I think that I thought that was super cool. Yeah. You know, that patient was like this crazy, uh, you know, covered in gang tattoos and, um, and he was still intubated. He had been shot and we had done a big operation on him and he was still on the ventilator and, um, but awake, which is not totally common. And he asked the nurse for a pen. And when I was rounding and he wrote that on a piece of paper, which is, uh, which was pretty cool. I mean, that's, um, yeah. it's not often that people that are on the ventilator communicate at all. Um, let alone to say thank you. So yeah, that was a, that was a a big moment. Yeah, that's, I think that's the coolest story. I think, would you rather have that or a, or a bag of cookies? I think I'd pick the former any day. (laughs) (laughs) I do like cookies though. I wouldn't mind getting some cookies every every now and again. Yeah, but then you go to your clinic and you get the leftovers. So you you really win them all. (laughs) 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 That's super cool. I, um, I love what we were talking about earlier too, about like attracting business and that you don't necessarily have to do that in your field. Um, but I'm curious how, uh, trauma has changed since COVID-19. I mean, from my perspective, I think about people aren't on the roads, people aren't, you know, out doing the things that they would normally do. Um, how, how has it changed since COVID? Um, I did read one of your posts that says, um, there will always be violence and Christmas lights. So maybe you don't have to, you know, there will always be those things, even if there is COVID-19, I'm sure you've still seen that, but how, how have things changed? You know, they've changed in a few ways. Um, I think the biggest way is that um, one of the things about trauma surgeons that a lot of people don't know, in fact, that a lot of doctors don't even know is that we're um, board certified in critical care. So, so to be a trauma surgeon, you're an intensivist. And so we, um, when the census got really crazy with COVID, we started our own COVID ICU, um, which we've stood up in addition to our trauma ICU and staffed 24-7. And so um, that's what I did last night is to to run that COVID ICU. So it's created this uh, extra avenue of work um, in that in the COVID ICU, which has been um, an experience unto itself. Um, I have to say, um, but the nature of trauma and emergency surgery really hasn't changed that much. I mean, people, um, there was a period there when people were really locked down when people were really sheltering, um, mm-hmm. that we saw maybe a little less, um, car crashes, things like that. But 
for the most part, our trauma volumes and emergency surgery volumes have stayed pretty much the same through the whole pandemic. Uh, we've been really busy. Uh, and that's just, again, the nature of what we do. You don't, it's not, uh, you don't decide when you get appendicitis. And, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, at some point, I think, you know, a lot of trauma centers around the country were reporting, you know, little upticks in violence um, based on the quarantine and, you know, people sheltering. And we certainly saw um, our share of that. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess just from an outside perspective, I, I pictured your your job as more of car crashes, gunshots, that sort of thing. But I think it's cool that now we get to know it's it's a lot of um, appendicitis, that stuff too, which you don't really, that's always going to happen. Yeah, yeah, not as exciting, but you know, like I said, it's the bread and butter. Yeah, and you like the bread and butter, which is cool. <laughs> I was 100% guilty of being one of those people that assumed you were an ED doc if you were a trauma surgeon. So I learned something today. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's pretty common uh, that people interchange those two. So, you know, talking about the the increased workload, you've got a separate ICU on top of the separate ICU you already have. And we talked a little bit about kind of keeping the resident spirits up. I'm sure keeping the attendance attending spirits up is is a challenge as well. I mean, how how have you guys been experiencing that as a team to not just be crushed by some of this stuff that's been going on the last year and, and just the job in general. I mean, like you said, I, do you find you're trying to use humor more, you're using your social media more, or are there other things you've been doing to try and just keep everyone going through this? Yeah. I mean, I would say um, trauma surgeons and, and, and trauma nurses, we're a pretty resilient group, I think by our nature. I mean, you know, some of the things that we, um, see and do, I think, um, kind of builds us that way over time. But I will say this is, this has even pushed all of us to a place where, you know, I don't think that we, we really knew. Um, I think for me, I, you know, humor is what I use to, to, to try to, you know, bring a little positive energy. You know, I, I joke a lot on rounds. Not, I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, doing a stand up routine from room to room, but I do um, take opportunities where I see something funny to just say something and try to make people laugh. And, um, and I try to, um, you know, make the nurses laugh, you know, because especially, than at night, you know, I think that's very isolating for those nurses. They're in PPE all night. They're, you know, in the ICU. So they're kind of tied to one or two patients and, um, you know, the hospital's relatively quiet. So, um, when we round at night, I try to just connect with all those nurses, not just about the patient, but just to crack a joke or, um, you know, last night I was rounding with, um, one of the residents and um he's he's a pretty serious guy and um but he's a great resident and i and i love rounding with him he's really meticulous with the covid patients and we got to this um room and we were talking about the patient and the nurse was wearing this super brightly colored um tie-dyed headband that she was keeping her hair back with and um so we got done talking about the patient and I looked at the resident and I said, well, do you want me to ask her? And he said, ask, what do you mean? Ask her what? 
And I said, do you want me to ask her what you wanted me to ask her? And he's like, what, what do you mean? And she, she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, he was asking if, you know, you would, you think you would loan him that headband to wear for the rest of rounds. And everybody started <laughs> laughing and he was embarrassed. And it's just stuff like little things like that that just take a second to make a joke. Um, you know, just kind of keep people's spirits up. I don't know. That's, that's kind of what I do. Yeah. It feels like we've, you know, I'm an outpatient pediatrician, so I don't have that kind of like rounding experience, but it does feel like because of the precautions we've taken, because of how we're literally staying away from each other, you just don't feel quite as human. I imagine that laughing even for a second makes you feel human again, which uh, is easy to forget about. Do you find that the families of patients when, when they're allowed to visit or patients themselves, do you think they appreciate humor? Because I think that's something we struggle with as, as doctors, nurses, um, PAs, nurse practitioners is, you know, how I want to crack a joke, but I don't want to offend anyone. I want to say this because I think it'd make them laugh, but what if it doesn't? You know, how do you find that you're able to do some of that with with your patients as well? I do. You know, it's it's I agree with you. It's hard to find, you know, the the appropriate time. Um, I think this whole pandemic has been so strange with families, um, you know, to to round an entire service and not see a single family member uh, is uh, it just feels very strange. Um, and it takes those conversations out of rounds um, and puts them in a different context because usually you end up just calling the families after all the rounds are done, but you, you don't have that same interaction. Um, and if you do see a family uh, nowadays, it's usually end of life. So it's almost ominous when you round it and you see the family in the room, um, which is just, so, just very different than what we're used to. Um, so I think not, not, not with those, uh, not in those situations, but I think in general, um, you know, with people that are recovering general surgery patients, um, things like that, I, I do, you know, you can kind of judge by the conversation and how it's going, whether it'd be okay to make a joke, I guess. Like if somebody, if a patient is already in a, in a good mood and they're smiling and you've, you know, rounded on them for a couple of days and you, you, um, you have a good rapport with them. Yeah, I will. I will make little jokes. Um, and I think people appreciate that. Um, you know, one of my favorite jokes is kind of, it's kind of a dumb joke, but it, it always kind of brings a smile to people's faces when, you know, I operate on somebody and then we're rounding the next day and, um, you know, or they're, you know, uh, they can't have anything to eat for surgery before surgery or after surgery and the patients will complain and they'll say, Oh, I'm so hungry. And you know, when are you going to let me eat? And I'm so tired of this. And you know, when you listen you say, you know, listen, I'm really sorry, but that's why they call you the patient. You got to be patient. Right. And then they just <laughs> roll their eyes and groan. And, you know, but that joke always kind of works a little bit to break the ice of something that's kind of a negative conversation. Yeah. Kind of a dad <laughs> joke to throw in there. Yeah, I'm a dad, so I got dad jokes all day. 
Dr. Feinstein, when we were asking um, you to come on the podcast and you said yes, which thanks for doing that, you said that you'd be excited to talk about finding joy in medicine by empowering physicians to have adventures in their careers, which Russell said would make for a great greeting card or something. So <laughs> second career you could explore. But I want to open the door of what you meant by that. I think it's a really powerful, powerful thing to say, especially the former part of, you know, finding joy in medicine. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two aspects to that. I mean, I think one is, you know, finding the joy in in what you're doing day to day, you know, the things that we're talking about, just, um, you know, being present and, um, you know, taking a second to recognize those moments that are great moments. You know, when a resident tells me, um, I do it this way because you taught me that a year ago, that to stop for a second and enjoy that gratitude and um, be in some of that uh, joy is, is important, right? Because we tend to just like hustle and we, or people thank us and we just say, you're welcome. And we just keep going. And so I think part of um, that is just to be conscious of it. And when I write these things down and I write probably, you know, a teeny tiny fraction of what I write down, do I post? Um, but I try to write down after rounds the things that made me happier, especially the things that made me laugh. I write them down. And I think the act of sort of acknowledging it and writing it makes me recognize there's a lot of joy there. Because, um, you know, if, you, if you're around doctors all the time, you can get, there could be sort of a doom and gloom, um, you know, glass half empty kind of um, uh, group think that uh, is not, it's not productive. And yes, the EMR is slow. And yes, we work a lot and on and on and on. I can think I've of never a heard anyone complain about the computers before. I think <laughs> right. making that up. Yeah. Yeah. I, maybe the doctors are different where you are Russell, but I, I tend to hear some complaining now and again. Uh, but uh, yeah. So I think, to um, acknowledge that yes, there are there are some things that we would love to change, but there are also a ton of things that are really awesome about being a doctor, um, and and making sure that you um, take a second to recognize those. I think that's one thing that's really important about finding the joy. the The other piece that you brought up about adventures is I have um, taken any opportunity I've been given, I think, to be a doctor in some other context or situation or apply this knowledge and career to something else. Um, you know, I'm wearing one of my disaster team shirts today because it has my, I figured I'd wear it to the podcast because it has my, it has my like embroidered name on it. Um, but that's so, you know, I've been on, you know, disaster teams. I've done relief surgery from, you know, to Turks and Caicos, to Tanzania, uh, to Haiti, wherever. Um, I've been a, I've been a cruise ship doctor. I've been a, an air ambulance transport physician. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think probably one of the most shared posts I ever put on LinkedIn was I just took a picture of all my badges. Like I just happened to open a drawer one day and I've saved all my badges and I just lined them up and took a picture and that picture for me just represents the 
you know, excitement of being a doctor and having adventures and doing cool stuff. Um, you know, if you're um, a doctor and you have a sense of adventure, there are so many people that want to um, work with you. And um, I don't know, I just, you know, I just uh, think it's uh, something that we should do more often because it helps you to appreciate what you do. I think we need to get the best cruise ship doctor story um, before, before we yeah. move on. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a lot of cruise ship doctor stories. Some of them can't be told on air. <laughs> but um, the one that I'll that I that comes to mind is that there um, Bud Light used to rent a crew two cruise ships every year, and they used to call it the the, the Port Paradise Cruise. And what they would do is they would rent two cruise ships and they would fill it full of um, bar patrons. So like they would go around the country and they would give all their best bars these tickets. And then they would say, you can give them away or do whatever you want with them. So the bars all around the country would fill these two cruise ships full of people that like to drink. Well, and then they would fill the cruise ships full of Bud Light, unlimited Bud Light, and they would sail from the Bahamas and then the two cruise ships would converge on this island and they would have a big concert. Like it was Nelly one year. Um, and as you would imagine, it, it would get a little rowdy. And so they would ask me to be the, one of the extra ship doctors for the, um, the, the Bud Light cruise every year. And so the reason that the Bud Light cruises don't happen anymore is because the last year they um, they um, filled these ships full of Bud Light and people went absolutely bananas. And the second to the last night of the cruise, people just got like so out of control. I remember there was this, um, this skinny little um, piano player that played at the piano bar, this very sweet little young guy that played at the piano bar and somebody requested a song and he said something snarkier that he didn't play that and they hit him over the head with a bottle. Oh, and geez. so oh, I, no. I was stitching him up and while I was stitching him up thinking, boy, this is not going well. This was like one in the morning. There, a huge fight erupted and um, one of the guys in the fight that I ended up seeing had a globe rupture. Um, oh, so God. he ended up um, losing his eye. And that's when Bud Light said, we're not doing this anymore. Uh, it's too much of a liability. So I was the witness to the end of the, the Bud Light cruises. Um, but it was, uh, it was fun while it lasted. Let's put it that way. It feels oh like, like a trauma surgeon designed that just to build up their business a little bit. <laughs> Let's put a bunch of beer and a bunch of people on a boat and see what happens. Yeah, it's like, it's like the joke that... Uh, that pediatric orthopedic surgeons all own the trampoline companies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Sorry. I didn't mean to derail us into cruise ships there. That was great. <laughs> no, I was hoping you would ask. That was, that was a really good one. <laughs> you can't let that one slide by. If you say you were a cruise ship physician, can't, can't get away with not. Well, sharing. I always, it would, it, it would be a great job if you uh, were single forever and you didn't really have any ties to anything, it would be, it would be an awesome job, but it's not, it's not a family job. Um, 
but it, it, it certainly is a fun place to be a doctor for a little while. Nice. Speaking of, um, so you have, you have two or three kids. I have two. Two kids. Okay. Um, what do you guys do outside of, of work when you have a little bit of free time together? Yeah. So my boys are three and five and, um, they are super, super rowdy. And, um, one of the things that's been really fun for me is that I've done uh, martial arts my, my whole life, wrestling and jujitsu and MMA and boxing. That's been the, the sports that I've gravitated to my whole, my whole life. And so um, when my boys were old enough, we started them in jujitsu, um, which, which is sort of a grappling form of, of martial arts um, that was started in Brazil. And, um, and I do that with them. So it was something that um, I just thought, you know what, I'm going to make time and we're going to do this together. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I do with the boys from an activity standpoint. And, you know, and then we do all the other stuff, hiking and try anything to make them tired, basically, is what we do. We do <laughs> anything to try to tire them out. That's so cool. My husband's a big UFC fan, so I'm up to date on all things UFC. Oh yeah, I I've been involved with the UFC for a long time. Um, I've been a ringside physician in the state of Arizona since 2009, and um, so I've been the ringside physician for a number of UFC events, and um, I'm a huge fan. So it's pretty cool to to be there. But um, over the years, I've gotten to know a lot of the fighters and, and really get to see behind the scenes in that world. It's really fascinating. That is so cool. Do you do a lot of work as the ringside physician? You do actually. Um, it's actually a lot of work and um, it's uh, you know, you wouldn't do it unless you really, you really loved it. It doesn't, it do, I mean, relative to being a doctor it doesn't pay well and it takes up a whole weekend, right? Because you have to, um, you do all the pre-fight physicals on all the fighters the day before, and then you have to go to weigh-ins. And then during the event, you're really working because you're doing all the post-fight physicals, making sure that the fight, you know, the fighters are okay after the fight. You may have to get in the ring to examine a fighter to see if the fight can continue. And then you're like, you're the last person to leave because if these guys have a concussion or an injury or something and they're, you know, curled up in the locker room, um, you got to make sure that there's no fighters left in the building before you leave. So it's, um, it's a, it's a lot of work actually to do an event. And, um, I just, as of a month ago, I'm no longer a ringside physician. Um, I'm a boxing commissioner, which is a way better gig because, um, I get to be part of it and go to all the events, but I can have, sort of a bigger influence on the way fighter safety is approached. And, um, and that way um, I don't have to be the first person at the event and the last person to leave. I can actually, <laughs> go, uh, you know, go, go to the event and then I just have to attend the commission meetings and um, work, work with them that way. That is so cool. So that flying knee last weekend where you just like, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I struggle um, with, with that, actually, um, you know, the problem with these fighting sports is that um, unlike other sports where concussion is a concern, concussion is actually the objective of the sport. 
And so, you know, you start to, you, you, you wrestle with this idea, how do you do this sport safely? And I think um, part of why I wanted to be on the commission is to sort is to develop these protocols to say, okay, somebody has been concussed. Well, what, what is really the safe amount of time um, before they can return to activity and um, how can we make um, training safer and what is the aggregate of concussions, right? I mean, if you got, we were tracking this and you got concussed twice this year and twice last year, well, maybe we need to start thinking about what your career looks like. And so um, these are all questions I think that um, physicians are, are wrestling with around the country in the, in, in the fighting sports. But um, I just wanted to be able to have a little bit more of a, you know, policy influence on it. So that's, um, that's why I'm doing it. But I, agree with you. I still cringe when I see somebody get completely knocked out. Um, that's just, there's something visceral about seeing somebody not move. Um, and that's, you know, even for me, I mean, I'm a trauma surgeon. I see people in all sorts of terrible situations and contortions and whatever, but I, but there's still something visceral about seeing somebody being knocked completely unconscious that I, um, it, it's hard to watch. That's a big culture change too. I mean, because I, it seems that the crowd goes wild when, when somebody just knocks somebody else out. Like that's kind of what's putting people in seats and selling tickets. And, you know, that's a, that's a big undertaking to say we're, we need to do this better because these are real people that are out there and they're really getting affected by this. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, what we know about the NFL and CTE and all these um, other sports, it's, there certainly is a cumulative aspect to it. And so um, trying to understand um, these careers and, you know, what, what they might be risking over time so that they can make informed decisions, I think is, is important. There's, there's a lot of new imaging and even blood tests, um, on the horizon that I think will help us to understand the effects of these concussions and so that we can, you know, treat the risk more appropriately. Um, but the last thing to your point that you want is, um, you know, people jumping out of their seats, cheering someone into dementia, right? You, you, you want, uh, you want the people to be able to enjoy the sport. You want the fighters to be able to make a living and, um, and perform at this extraordinary level. I mean, these guys, um, it's hard to explain the level of athletes that these guys are, you know, when you get to that level. Um, but um, you, you want them to have their athletic career and then have a life afterwards. And I think that's the, that's the goal. So I, I was wondering just to change directions here, you know, part of your role here at Banner is you've moved into kind of the corporate side of, of medicine a little bit and you're a physician executive and what was that transition like? Because I think a lot of us as, as doctors or uh, APPs are, you know, look at that as, you know, do I want to be a leader? What's my role as a leader? And you've kind of made it the bigger jump into a higher level management. What was that like for you? How did you decide to do that? And to, you have to leave a little bit of your clinical life behind to make room for that, I would imagine. Yeah, I think for me, it was kind of a slow transition. I mean, I started out as real hardcore academic. Um, I came here with the idea that I was going to teach and publish papers and 
Um, you know, I was in a lab for two years and, um, and I think for various reasons, I just, um, I never really got off the ground academically. Um, you know, it was a brand new medical school. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure. And so, um, at the same time, um, the medical group was growing and they had a need for somebody to lead in surgery. And I started thinking about, um, you know, the situation that we're in in this country in terms of healthcare. And, um, you know, this is, um, I started in leadership in 2014 and Banner was really in its infancy as a company transitioning from a hospital company to becoming an integrated health system. And at the heart of that, I think in a lot of ways is, um, is an engaged employed medical group. And so someone gave me the opportunity to say, well, what would surgery look like in that engaged employed group? And could you help us build it? And so I took that opportunity to start out in, in building surgery. And then that led to, you know, eventually, um, you know, look, you know, working with all the specialists um, in Arizona, um, in the community to, to try to help, you know, continue to grow and build that and, and try to fit that into a larger integrated health system. So it's been, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting journey. I think in terms of the transition from clinical to, um, you know, corporate leadership, you know, I feel like all physicians in some ways are, are leaders. Um, you know, you've got a team, you know, you've, you've got a clinic, you've got an office, you've got your residence or whatever. But I think um, we're always um, in situations where people look to us to, to lead. So I think um, that part wasn't really um, that difficult. I think learning business was difficult, you know, understanding contracts and, you know, P&L statements and margins and all, all of those things um, were somewhat uh, difficult, but, but again, it's exciting to learn something new. So I, I've, been, I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been, it's been like a free education where they paid me to get an education in business. It's the best kind of education. You use so, the word engaged. What are some of those things that you use for your teams to help get them engaged? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, one of the things that people said to me when I started in, in medical group leadership is, well, a lot of physicians say, well, why would you want to do that? Like, you could be in the operating room, like, why would you want to do that? You know, I'm trying to, um, trying to support physicians is like herding cats. You hear that all the time. And, and you, of all people should know, you actually don't herd cats, right? <laughs> No. <laughs> you herd cows. You don't herd cats. So, so right away they're wrong. And so I don't, I'm not trying to herd anybody, but you know, it's like, you don't try to herd cats. You, um, you know, you, you love them, right. You just, uh, you um, give them what they need and you're kind to them and they'll, um, they'll be a great, um, part of your life. So, um, I think that's really, you know, my, my approach to physicians, you know, when I took, the job, I told the folks at corporate, look, if you're, if you just want somebody that's going to take what corporate wants and just shove it down on the doctors, then I'm, I'm not your guy. Like I won't, I won't do that. But, but what I will do is act as an intermediary and I will try to 
help you to um, get the, the, the physicians to do what you need to succeed. And I will help the physicians get you to do what they need to succeed. So that's, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm an unapologetic physician advocate. Um, and I think um, the way that I engage people is I tell people, look, you know, I'm always gonna be transparent with you. I don't, I'm, I don't uh, um, hide information. I don't beat around the bush. I'm very upfront and transparent with docs. And, um, and I tell them, look, I'll go to bat for you. I'm not always going to win, but I will go to bat for you. So if a, if a doc tells me I need this or I want this in my practice or I need this change, I will absolutely go to whoever needs to, to be asked and advocate and do my best. And sometimes I win, sometimes I don't. But I think um, the fact that I'm willing to um, um, go to bat for them and the fact that I'm trustworthy, you know, that's how I keep people engaged. That's, it's not that hard. I mean, that's not the way I look at it. I mean, it's just, you know, be a good person. Don't overthink it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a hard culture to change is, you know, just like we talked about earlier, if it's, um, you know, if you go to a team of doctors and say, hey, we're going to get a new EMR and you're going to love it. They're going to, you know, they're going to grumble and look at you a little sideways like, yeah, okay, whatever. I think the same thing goes for, Hey, corporate's got an idea or there's, <laughs> there's something coming, you know? And, um, I think one thing I've liked about our leadership structure, and I think it's changing probably everywhere is that is what you said. It's, it's what we're, you know, we're here to hear what you think about this and come up with a plan together. Yeah. That, that culture is, I, I think hopefully changing even more as we go forward. Yeah. People have to feel heard. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, one of the things that I got a great piece of advice right when I started in, in leadership and um, the, the person that got me involved in being a cruise ship doctor, it's a brilliant guy and he's a nurse. And so he has been the medical director for uh, some of the largest cruise lines in the world. And he's a nurse leading a bunch of physicians. And so one time I just happened to be sitting with him having a drink. And I said, how do you do that? How do, and, 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 and most of the docs that work for this guy would say he walks on water. And I said, how do you, how did you do that? How do you get all of these docs to buy into your leadership? Um, and he said, it's really easy. I remember that every single one of them is special. And he didn't say it in a sarcastic way. He meant it. And he said, every doctor that I'm speaking with, when I'm having a conversation with that person, I remember um, how many um, birthdays they missed because they were up studying in medical school, um, how, how hard their residency was, um, what it took for them to be where they are, and that they are their own unique person. They're special as a physician. They're not a commodity. Physicians are not commodities. You cannot swap them in and swap them out. And you have to recognize that each doctor um, brings a huge amount of work and experience to the table that is uniquely theirs. And if you approach conversations and you treat people that way, they'll follow you. And that piece of advice I've always carried with me. Yeah, it's like my favorite quote of yours that, what, what do you say you don't, uh you don't coach teams into battle. You lead teams into battle. I, I botched it. What do you, what is it that you say? Oh, 
Yeah, it's that um, no one has uh, figured out how to manage troops into battle. Yeah. And I think that's that's another thing, too, that comes up a lot, which is that, you know, people ask me when I'm going to give up clinical. Well, you know, you're moving up. Um, at some point, you're going to have to give it up. I probably hear that once a week. And my answer is, I'm not. I'm not going to give up clinical. I think part of what gives me credibility in leadership is that I'm still a doctor. Um, that, um, you know, people see me in the trenches. People see me in the COVID ICU. Um, when I talk to a doctor about something or I, or I need to ask something of them, they know that I'm, I'm willing to do the same right? I'm willing to, to make that same sacrifice. Um, and so I think um, me being a practicing physician is critical to my leadership. It's not for everyone, but um, for me, it's critical to the way I lead. And, uh, and I just don't want to give it up. I mean, if somebody gave me an ultimatum and said, you have to give up leadership or you have to give up clinical, I would give up leadership. That's just, that's just me. Um, I've worked really hard to be able to do this job as a surgeon and I love it. And um, so I think I'm not anywhere near being ready to say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done with it, I guess. Yeah, that's really yeah. what I really love that we're doing at Banner. And I hope that other healthcare systems are doing the same thing is, like you said, listening to especially our physicians and APPs and saying, okay, how can we give you your cake and have you eat it too? Like, what is important to you? And how can we prioritize what you love to do as a physician, but also where you want to go? Absolutely. And I hope that, you know, I think with COVID, um, when we get on the other end of this, you know, people are going to be a little different, right? I mean, they're, they've, they've been through a lot. And I think um, as much as we can, giving the people the opportunity to sort of readjust their lives. I mean, I don't think there's anybody that's been through this uh, in medicine or not that hasn't thought about what, how, how does my life look when we're on the other side of this? Like, you know, what am I going to change or what, what could be different? And I think as much as we can as an organization, giving people the latitude to, to shape that, right? Well, I'm going to be 50% um, or I'm going to job share or, I'm, or I want to go on a sabbatical or um, I'm going to start taking every third week off or whatever that looks like for people so that they can start to, um, you know, re-equilibrate re uh, their work and their life. I think um, we should we should continue to, to, you know, make that happen. So we could probably go on like this for ever and just keep talking about <laughs> stories from the UFC or cruises or the Bud Light blimp that you probably worked as well. But um, we do like to wrap up with, with everyone we get to talk to with kind of a, on a high note and, and just thinking about, is there a story or a moment or something in your career that, is kind of your go-to something that you keep in your back pocket when you need to be lifted up or you need to remember why you do this or that this bad day does not define me? Is, is there something like that that you can share? You know, there, there was, I, that was the one question I knew was coming and I was struggling <laughs> for like, what am I going to answer to this question? I just, you know, it's like, there's so many stories. Um, but I guess the one, I, there's one story, one particular patient that, um, comes to mind as probably the most remarkable case I've ever done. And it kind of comes to mind sometimes I was on trauma call a couple of years ago and a 
guy came in and he was stabbed and the um the paramedic said we think this is arterial bleeding and he was stabbed um right next to his what we call the anterior superior iliac spine so if you feel your hip bone um that pointy thing right there he was stabbed um just next to that and as a trauma surgeon that is not a worrisome place to get stabbed that's kind of a okay, well, he probably, you know, maybe he got his intestines or something, you know, something that we can fix pretty easily. And so I didn't really believe them necessarily when they said there was arterial bleeding, because when people see bleeding, everyone thinks it's arterial bleeding. Everyone thinks, you know, but anyway, he came in and um, when we took down the dressing and uh, let go of the pressure, he had very, very brisk arterial bleeding, like squirting, you know, a couple feet in the air, arterial bleeding. And so we gave him some blood, put some pressure on it. And, um, he quickly became unstable. And so we were getting ready to take him to the operating room. And this guy looked at me and he said, um, he said, doc, don't let me die. I'm, I'm a regular guy, just like you. I have three kids. And so I get a little choked up because it's like, when patients say that to you, like one of the worst like superstitions we have in trauma is if somebody says, don't let me die, that person's probably going to die. The things that we hate to hear the most in the trauma, way, there's three things. Don't let me die. I'm cold and I'm thirsty. When you hear like unstable trauma patients say those three things, you're like, oh man, this person's going to die. But just something about the way he said it, like I'm a regular guy. Um, I'm just like you. So anyway, we rushed this guy to the operating room start the surgery. And, um, one of the ways we stop bleeding really quickly, kind of a go-to as a trauma surgeon is that you just put a clamp on the aorta because the aorta is, you know, brings the blood from the heart to everything else. And if you can clamp that, you can buy time. And what happened is I opened it, we opened him and I clamped his aorta and the bleeding got worse which was super confusing. Right. And because theoretically every, you know, his stab wound was below where I had clamped. So theoretically the blood supply should be incredibly diminished to that, whatever was bleeding. And it, and it wasn't, it it actually seemed to get worse. So I'm really baffled by this, but I'm thinking the only big artery anywhere near where he's stabbed is called the iliac artery. You know, the aorta comes down as a big tube. It's probably the size of a silver dollar. And then it splits into the two iliac arteries, um, which are about the size of a quarter. And you can bleed to death pretty quickly from the left or the right iliac artery. And in this case, it was on the left. So I immediately tried to get control of the left iliac artery and I couldn't find it. And so the resident is holding pressure. She's pushing down as hard as she can on the stab wound and I cannot find the left iliac artery. And I can find the right iliac artery, but that's not helping me. And I look for about 15 minutes and I'm totally um, confused and frustrated. And at some point, and this is like, you know, maybe one o'clock in the morning, I said, call the vascular surgeon um, because I need help. And I was, it was a very humiliating thing to do, right? As a trauma surgeon, I'm supposed to be able to get control of bleeding. Like that's, that's my paycheck right there, right? Like that's what they're paying me to be there for. And I couldn't find the left iliac artery and I was um, desperate. And so, you know, we held pressure 
we looked and looked and looked. Um, and eventually the vascular surgeon came in and he scrubbed in and he was kind of like rolling his eyes. I dragged him out of bed to find this gigantic blood vessel that I was supposed to be able to find myself. And he's a friend of mine and he was kind of giving me a hard time, which again, it's humor, right? Like even in that moment, he's like, seriously, Feinstein, like one o'clock in the morning, you can't find the LA artery. He scrubs in and he can't find it either. And the two of us are sitting there across from each other and we are trying to find this iliac artery and we can't find it. And this guy's still bleeding and the anesthesiologist is putting in blood. And uh, at one point he gets so frustrated, he walks away from the table and he's just swearing under his breath. And I'm like, man, just get back here. We got to figure this out. And so eventually we found where the bleeding was coming from it was coming from a part of the abdominal wall. And we said, we can't control it. We're just going to have to take big stitches and keep doing it until it stops. And so we just dove in trying to get some control over this bleeding with deep stitches. And it was like blood everywhere. And we tied it down and it, and it stopped. And we looked at each other and we were covered in blood. And meanwhile, we never found the left iliac artery. And he scrubbed out real quick and he went down to the foot of the bed and he felt the pulse of the foot because we thought whatever, whatever we just ligated, whatever, whatever we just oversewed probably was the blood supply of the leg. <clears throat> and he's like, there's a pulse in the foot. Let's get out of here. And so we packed him up and we took him up to the ICU and we um, got him stable overnight and we scanned him the next day. And what it turned out is that, he did not have a left iliac artery. He was born without one. And the blood supply to his leg actually came from the large arteries up here in his chest and traveled all the way down his abdominal wall and reconstituted in his femoral artery. Wow. Um, a congenital anomaly like you would have never seen before. Um, and what happened is, is he got stabbed in one of these gigantic collateral arteries that had formed from his chest to his leg. And that's what he was bleeding to death from. And so when I cross clamped his aorta to try to stop the bleeding, it was creating pressure that was going up here and then coming back down out, out the bleeding. And, um, and, and so he did fine and he lived and he walked out of the hospital and he was like, thanks doc. And, you know, and then talking to him, you know, in retrospect was like, did you ever have problems with that leg? Did you ever notice, you know, because the blood vessels theoretically are much smaller. And he was like, I played high school football. I never, I never had a problem um, with this ever. And so, um, you know, that's there. I think that whole story just sort of encompasses a lot of things for me about, about um, being a trauma surgeon, about um, how humbling a profession it is, about asking for help when you need it about, um, you know, improvising. And um, so, yeah, that's, that's probably the story that comes to mind the most. That story blows me out of the water. I was not expecting that. It's gonna be really wow. hard to beat. Uh, you yeah. set a pretty hard, high bar there. No, that was awesome. Uh, we really appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing these stories and sharing these perspectives on medicine and, um, Hopefully one day down the road, we can do it again and 
go through some more stuff. Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun to just take a minute and uh, especially in these times to talk about some of the good stuff. And uh, I really, I really enjoyed this time with you guys. So we're so thankful you came. Thanks for sharing. Yes, it was a lot of fun. Thank you guys, it was great. Bye. Bye. I really love talking to Dr. Feinstein. That guy is incredible. I feel pretty lazy and slow hearing about his life. <laughs> I'm blown away by that last story. That was just amazing. I'm super grateful that he shared that with us. Yeah, I am too. And if you guys want to tap into more stories like that, you got to check out his LinkedIn, Eric Feinstein. That's what you're searching for and you will not regret it. Check out the show notes. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys next time.